0: Hey, Rounds Table listeners, we have an exciting opportunity for you to take a seat at the table. The Rounds Table is looking to diversify and expand our team of co-hosts. We are looking for individuals who are interested in becoming a regular co-host and who want to take on a leadership role at the Rounds Table. Interested applicants should have strong skills in critical appraisal of evidence-based medicine. The Rounds Table has been downloaded over 200,000 times from a total of 138 countries worldwide. So we're looking for great people to help us continue to build this exciting platform. There is a lot of exciting work going on at the rounds table and we would love for you to be a part of it. If you're interested, please contact myself with a simple expression of interest at kieran.quinn at mail.utoronto.ca That's k-i-e-r-a-n dot q-u-i-n-n at mail.utoronto.ca The deadline for applications is the end of March. We look forward to hearing from you. Now on with the show. This is The Rounds Table. Hey Rounds Table listeners, thanks for joining us back on the show today. We've got a great show lined up for you, I'm pretty excited about it. Lots of interesting things to talk about and none other than Dr. Ariel Lefkowitz who's joining us back at the table to help us get through the week's medical literature. Ariel, welcome back to the show.
1: Glad to be here as always, thanks for having me aboard Kieran. And I, I heard, actually, that, uh, you know, you're, you're looking for a replacement for me and my colleagues on the rounds table. You're looking for some extra hosts?
0: Ah, uh, yes, we are upgrading, so to speak. No, in fact, we're actually expanding our co-host pool to get some... Point
1: taken, Kieran. Right, right. Yeah, your time <laughs> is up here,
0: Ariel. No, I'm just kidding. Yes,
1: but indeed. in
0: all seriousness, for listeners who are interested in getting involved and in taking out a leadership role, we are really looking forward to adding some members to the team. And I just wanted to remind you that the deadline for applications are March the 16th. It's as simple as an email to me, kieran.quinn at mail.utoronto.ca, just telling me you're interested and we will go from there. So hopefully you guys are out there listening and want to get involved. Very exciting. Very exciting. I think so too. Ariel, why don't we uh, jump in and you can introduce your article for the week.
1: Happy to, you know, I feel like a dinosaur already. Kieran, the second we finished our exams, it's like all our knowledge is out of date. But uh, I'm (laughs) I'm glad to present an article today that is rather hot off the presses, although it is from last year, it's December 2017. So this Cochrane meta-analysis by Stern et al. from December 2017 examined 17 randomized control trials with over 2,000 total patients Uh, and demonstrated that corticosteroids significantly reduce mortality in adults with severe pneumonia.
0: Wow, I am not a steroids in pneumonia guy, but I'm interested to see what the synthesis of the literature to date has to say about this. Tell me, Ariel, are you a steroids guy? And frame this study for us in the context of the literature.
1: Yeah, so, you know, full disclosure, as is important, I'm not a steroids in pneumonia guy. And so this article was was really interesting for me uh, as, you know, there's never more of an opportunity to change practice when you're talking about something you don't do. So the reason why this question is both relevant and contentious, as you alluded to, is because of the framework on which it's set in terms of the previous literature. So listen, obviously we see a lot of pneumonia, Uh, antibiotics help, but don't do the whole job. We still see a lot of morbidity, a lot of mortality in pneumonia, and over the years Dating back 20 years or so, we've studied the question of whether or not steroids helps in pneumonia. And it's really gone back and forth. There have been some studies that show benefit and some studies that haven't. And there have been complaints about the methodology, as I'll describe in a little bit. So this Cochrane review that I'm talking about today is actually a sequel. Part 2, Return of Cochrane. Because in 2012, Cochrane Review released a meta-analysis just like this one, but with fewer total patients. So that only looked at six studies and only 430 patients or so, with lower quality evidence, or so they thought, and found that while it seemed like steroids accelerated relief of symptoms, and uh, they call it time to clinical cure, the data were too poor to warrant any serious conclusions. But hopefully since then, new studies uh, have come to light that uh, allow for higher end values and and hopefully better evidence.
0: Well, as a systematic review, I am probably most interested outside of the answer to find out just how many randomized controlled trials there have been on this topic. So tell us, Ariel, just a little bit about the design of the study. uh, Take us through how they conducted this Cochrane review.
1: Yeah, so this meta-analysis conducted by researchers from Israel and Italy looked at 13 randomized control trials, which included 1,954 adult participants, and it also included four randomized control trials that included 310 children. That's outside of both of our scopes, but that's what they're looking at. In terms of comparing themselves to their previous Cochrane Review, it included 12 new studies and excluded one previously included study. And five new trials since 2012 were excluded as well. And they tried to exclude trials that showed some bias for whatever reason.
0: I see, so a total of 13 studies, 12 that have been new since the last, and they've cut out a bunch of the old ones due to concerns about their methodology. Did I get those numbers correct?
1: Right, 17 trials, 13 of them with adults.
0: I see, I see, I see. Well, it leaves me breathless about the children, so let's just hope that uh, the results are concordant. Okay.
1: That's right.
0: Take us through then really what was the the question they were looking to answer in this particular meta-analysis.
1: Yeah. So their main concern was mortality in pneumonia and whether or not uh, using corticosteroids versus placebo in these various trials reduced mortality. But other outcomes that they looked at was uh, time to clinical cure and stability. And we'll talk about why that might be a problematic outcome to look at. Length of ICU stay, length of hospital stay, and then of course steroid side effects.
0: All right, Ariel, a breath of fresh air. What were the findings of the results?
1: So, corticosteroids, you know, hate them as you might, they did significantly reduce mortality in adults with severe pneumonia, with a number needed to treat of only 18. Unbelievable. Wow. Uh, No mortality benefit for non-severe pneumonia, but it did reduce time to clinical cure, length of hospital stay, and length of ICU stays. So, you're... However, obviously... Yes, go ahead.
0: So, tell me, Ariel, what was the actual uh, relative reduction in risk of mortality?
1: So that number needed to treat of 18 represents a relative risk reduction of 42% or a relative risk of 0.58 in adults with severe pneumonia, but remember, there's no significant difference in adults without severe pneumonia or with non-severe pneumonia.
0: All right, and you said there was a problem in and around defining time to clinical cure as a potential outcome. Take us through your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, so actually... While this is a really impressive result, it's actually in the study's limitations that I'd like to spend a lot of time because indeed, so the idea of time to clinical cure, time to clinical stability is dependent upon things that steroids are actually gonna complicate in some ways. So for example, defervescence. So steroids can mask a fever that actually may still be present and so if you say hey if you have a fever then you are no you know you're not stable yet um, steroids is going to have a clear advantage in terms of that. And the same may be true in terms of length of hospital stay. We may actually be you know not discharging people who may have been discharged on steroids you know given this fact that, that the fever is masked in steroids and not without steroids. I see.
0: So potentially a problematic surrogate outcome uh, because in theory, if you're really looking for mortality benefit, which they find, then that might be just something that is less meaningful to measure. But tell me, what, what, what other thoughts did you have around any of their outcomes uh, that you wanted to comment on?
1: Yeah. So importantly, they did find an increase in adverse events of hyperglycemia in those treated with corticosteroids. And the harms in steroids are not to be kind of d- dismissed. So Most trials excluded patients who were at risk of some of the gravest outcomes of steroids. So those include uh, immunocompromised patients, patients with recent gastrointestinal bleeding, and increased risk of neuropsychiatric side effects such as the elderly. Uh, And some of those uh, trials actually excluded those patients completely. And so when we talk about the applicability of this study, we want to be really careful about who we're deciding to give steroids to. Uh, and I think that's going to be really important as we try to kind of parse this out, integrating it into our practice.
0: So, can you parse that out a little bit for us now? Like the trials they included in this, were they all comers with pneumonia? Did they look at, did they exclude individuals who, you know, trials that were looking at immunocompromised individuals? Can you get a better sense of that?
1: Yeah, so I think that the meta-analysis tried to uh, include trials with as diverse a patient population as possible, but on the individual trial level, they didn't want to, you know, they want to reduce the adverse effects of the study drug, and so pregnant women, patients with GI bleeding recently, and patients at risk of neuropsychiatric side effects and the immunocompromised. Those are the patients who are excluded often in the individual trials.
0: I see. I see. So they are really trying to get at the effect of these steroids overall in quote-unquote, all comers, but really the more common comers of pneumonia, those without the significant risk of complications from some of the treatments. Exactly. Or who would present with abnormal atypical pathogens like your immunocompromised
1: state. Right. In fact, actually, there is data that shows that in patients with an influenza infection or with aspergillus infection, glucocorticoid use could actually worsen outcomes. So again, to be really careful about those patients, you actually choose to use this.
0: Any other concerns you had around the findings from this study or the, uh, or the methodologies employed?
1: So th- the interesting thing about the literature on this particular topic is that we keep going back and forth between significance and non-significance in terms of the primary outcomes we're discussing. So there are really well-conducted randomized control trials with significant populations of patients that show no impact with steroid treatment. We have to really question why that might be. And the second thing, you know, just to touch again upon some of the outcomes that we choose, uh, reduction in length of stay, for example. In some of the studies, one of them quotes a reduction of length of stay of one day, which is significant to the healthcare system. But what they're talking about is a reduction from 7.5 days on average to 6.5 days. And you and I both know, Kieran, that your average pneumonia should not be staying in hospital for seven days. And so it may be actually other targets such as, you know, uh, physiotherapy and help at home that might be more effective in getting people out of hospital quicker and not a drug-like steroids which carries significant potential harms.
0: So to bring it full circle, you've told us today that this Cochrane review demonstrates a fairly impressive mortality reduction in individuals with severe community-acquired pneumonia but not for those with non-severe pneumonia. However, some of the other endpoints that if it all kind of lines up in the same fashion, should all be positive in their own right. And you had some concerns about those. So what are your thoughts overall on the believability of the primary finding of reduction in mortality when you're putting in context all of the concerns you've raised? In other words, should you believe this result and maybe this is gonna change your practice or do you still want yet another handful of trials to answer the question in your mind?
1: So for me, you know, if I'm on if I'm on call this weekend, which I am, so when Good I'm on luck. call this, thank you. <laughs> when I'm on call this weekend, I'm and I see pneumonias, which I most almost certainly will. You know, the Cochrane review is they don't say things lightly, and I think that we have to take this uh, finding of severe pneumonia reduction of mortality with a number needed to treat of 18 seriously. I think if I see a patient with severe pneumonia and no reason to think that they will be at high risk for adverse effects of steroids, I think I'm going to pop some steroids on them. Now, the last thing I'm going to do is rain on my own parade, if I could. Uh, I'd like to point out another meta-analysis, even hotter off the presses, from January 2018, published in Clinical Infectious Diseases, that again did not show any mortality benefit in treating pneumonia with steroids, but did show an increase in rehospitalization for community-acquired pneumonia-related Uh, adverse events and so this is likely an issue that we haven't argued about for the last time so you know like this is it it's confusing (laughs) we have
0: contradictory trials and now we have contradictory meta-analyses that's right flying fast
1: and furious Uh, Anyway, this weekend, I'll treat it with steroids, and maybe the weekend after, I'll stop again. Who knows?
0: (laughs) One more more question for you, uh, Ariel, related to this, just to help our listeners apply this to their clinical practice, if they are going to change. Does the Cochrane Review um, help define maybe using some traditional scoring metrics of severe versus non-severe and also do they discuss the dose of prednisone or other steroids you might give?
1: That's a good question so I'll start with the second question generally the dose that was used and now it's very hard to mend analyses because you're looking at lots of different studies but generally it's about prednisone 50 milligrams if they can uh, tolerate an oral dose or methylprednisolone IV at various doses if they can't tolerate uh, enteral medication. And then in terms of what defines severe, again, with so many trials involved, it's gonna be very difficult to to define it. Some trials are old enough to be using SERS criteria. I think it's really gonna be a clinical judgment and one also based on whether their comorbidities include diabetes, an elderly patient, or patients who are gonna be more at risk of adverse effects from steroids.
0: Well, the debate continues, but hopefully this has been informative to help change your practice or confirm your practice, uh, listeners out there. Let's move on to the second article of the week. It is a familiar ground for the rounds table, and we are coming back to look at the prevalence of pulmonary embolism in syncope. This is the third major study that has come out in the past a year and a half that has tried to answer this question, all beginning with the PISIT study from Italy, And this was published by uh, Giorgio Costantino in JAMA Internal Medicine in January of
1: 2018. So you've also chosen a sequel, Hollywood. It's just a bunch of repeats at this point, isn't it? (laughs) History repeats itself. (laughs) All right, well, lay it on us. What's the bottom line of your article?
0: Well, Ariel, in this study of five administrative databases around the world, in fact, that included more than 1.5 million people from four different countries, Pulmonary embolism was identified in less than 1% of patients who presented to the emergency department with syncope.
1: So that that really contradicts what we learned in the PISIT study.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, a lot of the controversy around the PISIT study was just how prevalent this is or isn't.
1: So flesh out why that's so important in terms of the controversy.
0: Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, in addition to PEZIT, collaborators in Toronto here with Dr. Amol Verma and uh, Fahad Razik are running the Gemini study that looks at internal medicine patients across the city of Toronto. And their study, which was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, demonstrated that there were significantly different estimated prevalences of PE uh, compared to the PEZIT study using the identical criteria for uh, inclusion and exclusion that PEZIT used. And Overall, the implications of of this finding, that is the prevalence of uh, PE and syncope are are actually very important because the PESIT study argued for an algorithmic approach to examining for the presence of PE, and that algorithm included in a significant proportion of individuals undergoing a CTPA. So you're exposing individuals to the risk of contrast dye and uh, its adverse events, as well as in an increasingly radiated population, we're, we're arguing for more radiation uh, as part of a diagnostic test. So ultimately, this very large administrative study sought to estimate the prevalence of PE in patients with syncope, and the difference is that these patients are presenting to the emergency department and are not admitted to hospital for, for syncope.
1: So I'm particularly interested in the method, specifically how they decided whether or not these patients... Uh, had PEs, because surely they weren't scanning every single patient who came in with syncope.
0: Right, so let's go through it in our usual algorithmic fashion, if you will. Uh-huh. So um, uh, as I alluded to, this was a large retrospective observational study using administrative data. Uh, There's five different databases used in four different countries. So two in the U.S., uh, one in Canada from Ontario, one in Denmark, and one in Italy. And these were looked at patients who were presented to the emergency department between 2000 and 2016. These patients were adults, and the methodology indicates that these patients were screened to identify those with uh, syncope codes at discharge.
1: Excellent. And so, how they how did they decide whether or not they had PEs? I'm on the edge of my seat here, Kieran.
0: Right. I kept you. I kept you uh, hanging, so to yeah. speak. <laughs> So they wanted to look as the primary outcome of the prevalence of P.E. And they use ICD, so International Classification of Disease Codes. Um, And so for those of you who are not familiar with administrative data, basically hospitals that collect this type of information on a population level have a bunch of people called abstractors who review the charts, every chart uh, of every patient that comes through their hospital, and they assign up to a certain number of diagnoses that these patients have uh, during their hospitalization, including a main diagnosis and then some other coexisting diagnoses. So they would basically figure out that somebody had a PE by saying, well, uh, you know, Joe Smith came through and had a CT scan and that scan was positive for PE and the radiologist report said that and therefore they would get assigned the appropriate ICD code that is then put into the, uh, the healthcare databases for these countries.
1: So my question would be, if they didn't do a CTPE, if they didn't do a VQ scan, if they didn't do a D-dimer on a patient who was presenting with syncope, did they call that negative or indeterminate?
0: So they would not be
1: coded as having
0: PE in the administrative database if they did not have any test that proved that they had a pulmonary embolism or some sort of venous thromboembolism, which was also looked at here, like a DVT.
1: Right, so that'll be the, that'll be the crux of what we discuss, I suppose.
0: Absolutely, and um, and if you're going to put you on pause for just two seconds, because we we are going to come to that in the limitations. But uh, before we sort of spoil the the soup, let's go through the results a little bit.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm too hungry for it, Kieran. All right, take us through the results.
0: Well, the last thing I will say is, which is critically important in this study compared to the other previous two that they looked at two separate sensitivity analyses that considered the prevalence of pulmonary embolism at 90 days after the discharge from from the emergency department, Um, and one that also considered what we would call a worst-case scenario, that all people who had venous thromboembolism coded on uh, on their admission were actually called a pulmonary emboli. So anybody that had a lower extremity scan, and let's say they were anticoagulated and therefore didn't get a CTPA, they did a sensitivity analysis to say, what. Well, let's assume that every single person that had that actually had a PE and see how the outcomes change as far as the prevalence. So there it is, enough setting the table. Let's dive in and you can have your soup. So the combined databases, as I mentioned, included over 1.6 million adult patients who presented to the emergency department for syncope. Most of those patients who presented were evaluated in some way for syncope. And the rate of the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism ranged from 0.06% to 0.55%. Very, very, very low prevalence in these all comers to the ED with syncope. Now, if you looked at a subgroup of hospitalized patients, so getting closer to reflecting the studies of the Gemini and the PZIT group, the PE prevalence diagnosis ranged from 0.15% to 2.1%. Finally, if you looked at the proportion of individuals with PE that were diagnosed at 90 days follow-up, as well as if you were considered all venous thromboemboli to be pulmonary embolism, they were all roughly the same ranges as I just reported above. So that kind of confirms overall that the prevalence of PE in this population of individuals presenting with syncope to the emergency departments are very, very low. Much lower than P's hit.
1: No. Not exactly 20%. Yeah, exactly
0: right. PZIT was 17%, so we're well below this, uh, an order of magnitude, in fact, 10 times below that.
1: And I think that, you know, as internists, that kind of passes the smell test. Uh, That's what we always wanted the result to be. PZIT has kind of thrown us for a loop. Um, But do tell us about uh, a few of the limitations of the trial. How are you going to interpret this data?
0: Yeah, so the major criticism of PZIT that came out was that its generalizability to other healthcare systems may have been very different than for rates of admission of syncope because if you if a country does not admit patients for syncope as much or conversely admits a lot more syncope it's going to really alter your prevalence of PE because your denominator changes significantly based on how many patients are actually included and this study because it's done from four countries around the world i think intentionally to get at this helps to put the nail in the coffin for that, to prove that that is, in fact, true, that countries have different admission rates. So, for example, Canada admits about 16% of syncope uh, presentations to hospital versus Denmark, where they admit 42% of syncope presentations to hospital, and the U.S. and Italy are, are in between there, and the U.S. admits around 30%.
1: There you have it. So, tell me, Kieran, do you have whiplash How have you kind of weathered the storm of PEZIT and now this new study? Um, What do you make of it all?
0: Yeah, I think that for me, this reassures me that we're not missing as many PEs as we might have been before for not looking at them algorithmically in patients with syncope. This study to me has been very helpful in multiple ways. First, it confirms that there is wide variability in admission rates for syncope by country and that helps to explain, possibly at least explain the, some of the findings in PISIT. Um, second, it doesn't limit the population of investigation to hospitalized patients exclusively, so now we're looking at all comers to the emergency department and that helps to sort of eliminate some selection bias that potentially was present in PISIT. Third, it fits in the broader spectrum of what all of the literature to date, in addition to what Pizit and Gemini have said, that prevalence of PE and syncope is probably very low, in the, in the order of about 1%. Now, the counterpoint you could make is that this study, in addition to Gemini, did not apply an algorithmic approach to looking for PE, where Pizit was sort of positing that you should do that. And you could interpret the data in two ways. First, you could say, look, if pulmonary emboli were present and you missed it at the initial presentation because you didn't do an algorithm and you didn't go looking for it as, as carefully as PISA did, you would think that these patients would show up within 90 days later if it you was know, a clinically significant pulmonary emboli. They're going to come back to hospital because their symptoms are not going to get better and somebody eventually is going to go looking more carefully for pulmonary emboli and you would find it.
1: That's right. So I think that was one of the main criticisms of PZIT was that are these PEs incidental or are they significant? And so the 90-day follow-up in the retrospective data um, puts me at ease that we aren't missing something that we really should be catching.
0: Exactly. So even if you assume that patients had an underlying pulmonary emboli that just wasn't captured because we didn't algorithmically look for it, then those aren't really the pulmonary emboli that we should be worrying about because those are probably not the ones that are causing major symptoms and they're not causing—they're probably not causing major mortality. So it's sort of what of this, you might think about this as a clinically significant PE versus not if you think they're still present but we didn't find them. So the take-home message is, yes, if you don't go looking for things, you won't find it. We all know that's true in medicine. But I think that To assume that if you went looking for pulmonary emboli in this population of patients, you're gonna find 16% more as an absolute prevalence, I just don't believe that that number is true. So I think, to me, I am reassured that pulmonary emboli are not nearly as prevalent as Pizit suggested, and I'm more on the side of the general literature, including what Gemma and I said, that we just think it's a study methodology issue in it and not a clinical finding that's true.
1: Well, I trust you, Kieran. So if you're reassured, then I'm reassured.
0: Right. Well, I appreciate your trust. <laughs> I will say that my approach as a, on a personal level, I still consider the diagnosis of PE in every patient with syncope. I apply a Wells score now as a consequence of the discussion around this, and I do still like to do a D-dimer with age-appropriate cutoffs, but only if my pretest probability is high and I'm you know, I'm, I'm not convinced it's another obvious cause, do I really then pursue some other form of investigation, which might be something like a lower extremity ultrasound, and I don't think the jumping directly to CTPA or VQ scan is the right approach.
1: I think that's a very fair balance of the literature available.
0: All right, that's talked and thought about pulmonary embolism and syncope to death on the show. Let's move on to my favorite part of the episode. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we're reading about. Tell me, Ariel, what is catching your eye this week?
1: I read a, a very fascinating article from the Smithsonian Magazine. So as you know, as everyone knows, the burden of contraception falls primarily on women. And over the past 10, 20 years, researchers have struggled and failed to find a male birth control pill. But uh, researchers at the University of Minnesota are taking an innovative tack. They're using Wabain, which is an African plant extract that hunters and warriors traditionally used as a heart-stopping poison on their arrows. And these researchers are using this plant extract as a substrate in developing a male contraceptive pill. It targets the motility of spermatozoa, and we'll see in further animal trials whether this actually prevents fertilization between mates.
0: I, I, I am speechless. The fact that it is a cardiac lethal That's uh, right. uh, compound. That's right. But hey, it takes an army. All right.
1: Listen, if we, if we could find a use for rat poison, if we could find, I think there are all sorts of natural traditional poisons that are just waiting to be million dollar drugs.
0: That is a very good analogy. All right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I am going to
0: tell you about something totally different. Uh, and it was actually just an interesting essay in JAMA about the archetypes to help mentees succeed in academic medicine, as far as their academic mentoring. We know that. People, academic clinicians do benefit from mentoring. They publish more papers if they're researchers. They get more grants. They're promoted faster. They're more likely to stay at their academic institutions with greater career satisfaction and self-reliance. So mentoring is important. But it turns out there are sort of as the author uh, posits, four main categories or archetypes of these mentors. And so I just wanted to take 30 seconds to tell you about what that was because it, it was kind of cool. And it definitely I can sort of put my mentors in different buckets as to how they fall. So the first one is a traditional mentor. This is the usually takes the form of frequent hour-long meetings in which mentors provide feedback on papers, projects, and scholarships and career milestones. The second one is a the coach. Coach teaches people how to improve in a particular skill or subject and therefore you probably this is this individual is spending less time with a mentee, but it just really on focusing on particular uh, skills or subjects, as I said. The third is the sponsor. So the individual here is committed to the development of a program, project, or individual, and they use their influence to make the mentee known, whether the mentee knows about that or not. And the last is the connector. And these people are master networkers that pair mentors, coaches, and sponsors with mentees. And they, they, they do this with their, through their influence to sort of connect everybody together to help boost up their mentee in that sense. So definitely, I know uh, at least several people that fall into each bucket. And I thought it would be interesting to share. It's worth a read if you, if you work in the academic field. Uh, and uh, it's an interesting read overall.
1: Well, just as you said, it takes a village. And there you have it. You can't be everyone to every person.
0: That's right. It takes a village to produce this show, so thank you to all our hard workers uh, who continue to support The Rounds Table and all to you listeners for joining us on another week. We look forward to having you back, and Ariel, we look forward to having you back sometime soon at The Table.
1: Kieran, always a pleasure. Until next time.
0: The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com The Round's Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcias-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Round's Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.